Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we're on remote today. The roads are stormy. I don't know if Stormy <laughs> I don't know if Stor- Stormy Daniels has caught on as the name for the storm, but that has certainly caught on in like all of the like Democratic emails about rescheduling, like, oh, are we still gonna be on for tomorrow? I don't know. It depends on what the Stormy Daniels news is. Like that's that's caught on, but I don't know if that's fully the official name yet. I've seen it a little bit on Twitter. I, I am sitting in my house. I'm kind of I tried to surround myself with some sound absorbent things, but I am also I have the window in front of me, which is looking out onto some beautiful snow covered trees and it's kinda gorgeous. So we we had every intention, listeners, of recording in person this week. Yep. But Stormy Daniels, what are you gonna do? Wait, what are you gonna do? So yeah, I'm in my closet, which I was in during my maternity break all those years ago, early on in the holsters. Um, and now <laughs> I'm not on my maternity break. My kids are running around and I don't think I want to leave this closet. Like I think I want to stay in this closet <laughs> all day. Like, Is it a safe space? <laughs> it's my like a little panic room. I, I don't know why I ever left this closet. <laughs> like, it is very comfortable and quiet. And I don't think anybody knows where I am or knows to look for me, but we'll see. That may turn out to not be true. Um, okay. So what are the top lines this week, Kristen? We're going to start. Start off this week by looking at some fresh Senate and governor's polls out there in the states. Then it's a stormy week. Ha ha ha. Do evangelical voters care at all about the unfolding revelations about the president and a variety of adult film actresses? Uh, Pew has released some fresh data. You'll never guess which of your co-hosts is currently needing to curl up in a ball in the bottom of her closet on her own, sobbing <laughs> through fits of... I told you so. Um, We'll talk a little bit about what do voters think about the deep state and the Me Too generation gap may be a little different than what we've heard before. And is the Me Too movement shaping people's voting intentions? And finally, we have found something on which Margie and Ronald Reagan profoundly disagree. It's probably not one of the other 8,000 things you think it is. We will discuss at the end of the show. That's right. Good. So first, there was a uh, big primary in Illinois last night. Some thoughts about what's happening on the battlefield for governor's races. But also, we should check in. There's new polling in the Senate and some Senate uh, contests. And I think, and if you combine all that with what the generic ballot shows, which is now showing roughly a plus eight Democratic advantage. Remember, it had narrowed a couple of weeks ago, but that has now widened back out. Um, the trends all point to some Democratic advantages. Uh, if you look at two new PPP polls, one in Tennessee, where former Governor 
Uh, Phil Bredesen it has a slight lead over Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn, 46 to 41. There's also a poll in Nevada, also PPP, that shows um, uh, Jackie Rosen uh, with a lead over the Republican incumbent, Dean Heller, um, with him only having a 28 percent approval uh, job rating, which is uh, quite low. So uh, this points to some warning signs for Republicans, although, you know, maybe there is a silver lining in, in the fact that some of these primaries are getting cleared. What do you think, Kristen, as you look at these numbers? Yeah, so the Tennessee race has been one that I've been kind of keeping my eye on. One, and because I do a lot of stuff in the getting Republican women elected department. And so Marsha Blackburn, having been a Republican woman in Congress, uh, now sort of moving uh, into a different race, uh, race for a different office, um, you know, that that has been uh, on my mind. Uh, and what I consistently hear out of Tennessee is that, you know, this is in some ways like a Connor Lamb was able to run as a Democrat in a Republican area and pull it off because he was able to distance himself from the National Party and was able to build up enough of a brand as as someone who was not a generic Democrat, um, but was in some ways, you know, more moderate-ish on the right issues. And that's kind of what I have heard from folks in Tennessee about Bredesen as well, that, I mean, he's got, he was governor of the state for eight years in a fashion that, you know, there may be some moderate Republicans who kind of look back favorably on him. And so that's kind of a, a challenge for Republicans and why, why he is, performing so well, even in a state that we know is a red state. I think Tennessee's always been kind of kind of quirky in that way. I mean, yes, Tennessee is is in the South. They have multiple SEC schools. It's a it's a red state. But it's also, you know, whether we're talking about Lamar Alexander or Bob Corker or, you know, the Republican, you know, Governor Haslam, like it's it's this like interesting flavor of Republican that frankly I kind of love tends to come out of Tennessee. Um, but I, so it's I think more it's quirkier than just like generic red state. And so I think that is, uh, that's a little bit of what you're seeing there. Yeah. I mean, I think there, I, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, well, in Tennessee, I mean, Bredesen was the governor, Marsh Blackbird, a prominent congresswoman, but still hasn't been elected statewide. So this could be part of just how well-known folks begin and sort of their image, the breadth and depth of their image uh, as they enter, enter the race. Um, and then, you know, the other thing for Nevada that's particularly interesting is that, uh, their Heller faced a primary challenge and, you know, mercurial primary challenges on the Republican side in particular are, you know, can be, can add to the unpredictability and some of the vulnerable nature in some places. I mean, you had on Tuesday, uh, Governor Rauner had to, uh, fight back a primary challenge from someone who, and, you know, he, he came out on top, but it was close. It was down to the wire. So, um, so there was some concern that that would happen to Heller with, uh, a primary challenge from, uh, Danny Arta uh, Tarkanian, right? I'm getting that right. And, um, but anyway, he just ultimately decided to drop out as, as the, at the president's request. So perhaps that means that things will be a little bit better for Heller. Um, but these numbers are quite vulnerable, um, you know, show real signs of vulnerability. Yeah, I think in, in the Nevada race, I mean, this is the Senate race that I think Republicans are 
the most focused on, in part because this is our our most vulnerable incumbent. Um, you know, picking up open seats or holding open seats is important, but you know, you hear a lot of effort focused on protecting the folks who are in. Um, and and Republicans have always known that Heller was it was it's going to be tough um, because Nevada is not a red state; it's a blue state uh, or a purplish blue state. Um, and so I, the but I would just add that caution. You know how I feel about PPP, so I'm just going to leave it. I'm gonna. I'm going to let that go. <laughs> yes, both the both these polls are PPP, um, you know, and I think they confirm, you know, what people probably thought that conventional wisdom was in these races. You know, what I'd, I'd be interested to see is how Marsha Blackburn does with women in particular. We're going to talk about the Pew polling on the gender gap and party identification and so on, you know, in democratic primaries, women do very well in primaries because women candidates do because democratic primary voters are so disproportionately women do Republican women have fewer opportunities, one to clear a primary or to do well in a primary. If their primary electorate is not disproportionately women as more men or equally divided um, and do our, what's the ability for women candidates on the Republican side to reach across party lines to reach out to Democratic women or independent women and so on. So these are interesting questions that we will see how they evolve over the course of the cycle. So just looking at the generic congressional vote, which is going to kind of set the tone for uh, how what are what is the what are the headwinds that Republicans are facing? Um, Real Clear Politics polling average of the generic ballot has D plus eight right now, which I think is consistent with Democrats not just having a good not just having a good night, but it, that's I think what it would take for them to flip the house. Uh, got a long ways to go. I, I got pushed in a meeting the other day to like giving my percentage. What percentage chance do you think there is of flipping the house? How would you say? No, I'm not telling you here because I didn't want to say it there. And I was like, <laughs> okay. you said a number. And then I was like, oh, God, I wish I hadn't even said anything. Because it, we're so far away. We're so far away. So not only should I have not said anything in that meeting, but I'm definitely not saying anything here. As we get closer, I will be happy to offer my assessment. But yeah, that's... Who knows if we're going to be at war with North Korea or if Mueller will have been fired or like, you know, the moment that I say like, um, I think Republicans have a 60 percent chance of keeping the house that like all of a sudden, you know, like we're going to get to go to war with North Korea or something. So I'm just not saying it. Yeah, we are. We it's it's hard to even predict what's going to happen, you know, by lunchtime, let alone <laughs> weeks and weeks from now uh, in this current uh current um chaotic washington politics um so speaking of chaos uh the news in trump his approval and disapproval numbers are the same so yeah after that big after that big uh you know december to february boost he is kind of held held steady and this is just another reminder that for as crazy and chaotic as the news feels Public opinion does not look crazy and chaotic when it comes to views on the president. They are extremely stable. But it doesn't mean that people think. Yes. It doesn't mean that they feel like things are stable. Right. That is for sure. Yes. For sure, for sure. (laughs) We were headed right to that same point. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It it doesn't mean that they think our leaders are stable, but it means that, that 
people are not wildly shifting their own views on policy or on yes. uh, on on political leaders. They feel stable about the instability. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so um, this includes uh, some voters that you would think might be very moved by some of the crazier news we've seen. So yesterday I was on uh, headline news on SE Cup's show. And while I was sitting in the green room, they, I was watching like afternoon CNN. Um, and there was so much coverage of this like stormy Daniels polygraph that even that I was just like, guys, guys, like is literally nothing else happening. <laughs> and he was just at like an hour solid of like, let's talk about what this stormy Daniels polygraph means. They brought an adult film star on to do an interview with her because she was friends with stormy. And I was just like, what am I watching? Like, what is happening? This is, this is all this is all crazy. But you know who doesn't really care and who doesn't really think this is super crazy? Apparently white evangelicals. Uh Donald Trump's job approval rating um since the increase since the March 7th televised briefing where uh the president's uh press secretary denied Stormy Daniels claims. I mean, this has been in the news for a couple of months and Trump's job approval among evangelicals has not really budged. In the same way that most people's job approval of him has not really budged since January. Um, still looking at north of 60% in the 70%-ish range. Uh, this is just not something that is moving the evangelical community away from Donald Trump. Right. So the question is, are people not following it? Are they consuming news where they're not getting so much Stormy Daniels coverage? So, or are they saying, you know... I've made my peace with this situation. <laughs> you know, I knew, I knew that, that Trump was not, you know, uh, had not lived a life of sort of moral, traditional moral purity. Let's put it that way or moral purity yeah. as traditionally described. Um, and so this is, you know, not new information on that, uh, on that level. And so this is something I've already decided to integrate and, and I don't have any new feelings about it or, um, or people just saying like, oh, I haven't really heard that much about it because the Stormy Daniels lawyer hasn't been on Fox or what have you. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like the idea that Donald Trump is a morally imperfect individual is something that most evangelicals <laughs> have sort of grasped. But like the argument you hear is not that Donald Trump is a perfect person, rather right. He is an imperfect person who is a vessel for all of this great policy that that evangelicals love. And so th right. that to me is why, you know, hearing that argument is why like, oh, well, there's a new allegation, like why that doesn't change things like that's kind of already priced into their views of this guy. And he's he's giving them the policy that they want. So why would you why would yet another porn star coming out change that view? Yep. Yep. Um, but the this trend is where line, we are. This is yes. where we're at right now. Well, I love that the trend line has like, you know, all maps. I mean, it's helpful, but it still it assumes that we're all following the twists and turns. Like, here's where this specific plot point in the story happened. Here's where this plot point happened. Like, okay, well, this is, you know, this is fine for people who are following the news constantly, but not everybody is following with such beta no. breath. And if I'm, if I may, uh, just briefly address something from our Facebook page from the weekend. Uh, so on last week's show, we discussed somebody who had commented 
that they really thought that the show needed an actual conservative voice, that then there would be real debate and that would make things interesting. And so we've talked about it on the show and how we kind of thought that was silly. And, you know, uh, this commenter came back uh, and I broke my do not engage with the trolls rule. And yeah, I, engaged. I know. <laughs> I saw. I engaged. <laughs> I, saw. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, Kristen, this, Kristen does not normally engage with trolls. I, in fact, yeah, I mean, I was, I was talking about it. So I was like, Kristen just like broke bad on <laughs> One of, our, one of our listeners, I've never seen her do that before. Like she literally never, ever, she doesn't get trolls and she doesn't fight with trolls. Like no, she's got a no troll zone that, you know, is enforced very strictly. <laughs> yeah, I, but, and it, but it was, so this poster came back uh, and noted that uh, he really. We did tweak him. Order- we did tweak him. I mean, we did like, oh, sure, you know, sure, sure, we totally sure. tweaked him. Yeah. Fairly, totally. but yeah. Um, but but this gentleman really wants our show to be something that it is not. He would really like a show which is Gloria Steinem debating with Phyllis Schlafly, to which I would kindly suggest that he find a time machine to go back to 1980 <laughs> when that was the relevant debate over feminism. Right. But like, that has not, whether either Phyllis Schlafly nor Gloria Steinem, right? Like, Gloria Steinem got into some hot water with with women and with the modern feminist movement over some comments over the last few years, Phyllis Schlafly by the end of her life was so far removed from anything resembling the kind of conservatism that I stand for that like, no, like that's, if you want that debate, there are like thousands of podcasts out there. Surely there is a podcast that meets that definition. And surely you can find podcasts where there are women who will aggressively defend the Trump administration at every turn. But that is not this show. My job is not to be a Trump spokesperson. My job is to represent my own views secondarily, but first and foremost, to talk about the polls. And so in this case, we are not here to have me and Margie fight over whether Trump is good or bad. We are here to discuss the polls. And so when I see something like this and I'm like exasperated about like, Voters, like, I'm not here to be like, well, but Trump is great, despite this porn star thing. Like, if that's the show you want, like, I, I, I hate to tell listeners to go elsewhere, but, like, that's not what we do here. You have misunderstood what our show is about. Okay. Yeah. That's YOLO, so- YOLO rant number one. <laughs> Get hyped yeah, for it, YOLO rant number two. <laughs> so, it, so that, I mean, I, so what was funny, I mean, what was interesting, at first, it is a legitimate question not just for our show obviously we have a little podcast right that i'm in my closet on the floor right (laughs) so it's it's never mind the pollsters but it is a legitimate question say like well how can you have a conversation without like a trump supporter can you have a balanced bipartisan thing if you have you know a republican who's very critical of trump and a democrat is that bipartisan right in the current climate and that is a legitimate thing that media outlets are trying to hash out and figure out what to do um but you know this is not just a like a slugfest show this is what the polls show and so you know that's so it has a different take and we don't come here to kind of just spout off on our own sort of personal rants um and then you know the funny thing is because it's sort of like your show's not interesting. Like, why isn't it about baseball? I love baseball. Like, that's what I would find interesting. Like, okay, well, you know, I'm sorry. That's not what our show is. Like, I'm sure there are screeny podcasts out there and that's not what we do. So um, anyway, but it was just entertaining. And then the, the there were some like polling 
fact checks to it. Like, you know, evangelicals are the largest demographic or something like that. I'm like, well, that's not true. And that, you know, there were, there were a lot of assumptions about women's breakout among all these different groups. Like, well, presumably, you know, that would be half women. Okay. Well, that's actually not true. Right. So there were, there were a lot of other things to debunk, but I didn't even um, engage there. I just, it was mostly (laughs) the insistence that I be Phyllis Schlafly. That was like, no, (laughs) I gotta, I gotta shut this down. Post-based. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was YOLO rant one. Stay tuned for YOLO rant two, uh, two pew, two furious and YOLO rant three, <laughs> Cambridge Analytica is exactly oh, right. what That's I told right. you guys it was. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So you got oh, two good. more this YOLO rants coming up in the show. Get excited. Get excited. <laughs> Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Okay, good. A little bit of polling from Monmouth. This made a lot of news this week, this deep state uh, poll that they did. And they asked people how familiar they were with the phrase deep state. And not many people were, which should not surprise anybody who's listening to the show. Um, But yet they still think that it probably or definitely exists. So you had only... Um, you know, you had fewer than half say that they were familiar with the phrase deep state. And then they said, well, the term deep state refers to the possible existence of a group of unelected government and military officials who secretly manipulate or direct national policy. Do you think this type of deep state in the federal government definitely exists, probably exists, et cetera? Um, and then you had like three fourths say it, you know, they think it exists, even if they're not familiar with the term. They're like, oh, well, actually, yeah, that exists. I just didn't know it was called deep state, basically. And majority of people are worried about the government monitoring their activities or invading their privacy. I mean, this is, you know, it's hard from these questions to know what it is that people are thinking about, since this is a kind of amorphous concept, however defined. This is one of those things where you want to do a little qual before your quant to just not because the quant is phrased wrong, but just so you have some texture to what people are saying and what kind of monitoring do they think people are doing? Do they think like somebody, you know, is reading their emails or do they think that there's just a database with all their stuff that one day somebody might access? Um, we don't know the answer to that, What? It, but it made massive news. I mean, lots of people were talking about it. Yeah, I think when I first started reading it through, so there's a question in the questionnaire, it's question 32. It says, as it stands right now, do you think that unelected or appointed officials in the federal government have too much influence in determining federal policy, or is there the right balance of influence between elected and unelected officials? And 60% said unelected or appointed officials have too much influence. And when I read that question, I thought, I didn't like the wording too much because appointed officials, while they themselves were not elected, are being appointed by unelected individual, like we know we can't elect cabinet sec- every cabinet secretary and every cabinet undersecretary and all of right. that. But, for, but political appointees are different than career folks, you know, folks who are, are, you know, go from administration to administration. They're not 
appointed by an elected official necessarily. They're they are hired. More, I don't want to get into the the like the nitty gritty of career versus appointee, but I, I thought like mushing unelected and appointed. I, I just wish mm. I'm, I'm, there's a different way. Like I, there's a difference between like technically Rex Tillerson was elected, was unelected, and was appointed, but like was pretty clearly connected to was an outgrowth of a particular elected leader. Meanwhile, like right. some of the folks that conservatives are up in arms about are folks like, you know, like there was all the stuff last week with Andrew McCabe and like, technically I don't believe he was a political appointee. I believe he was a career official. Um, so just, it's one of those things that's hard to ask people about in a poll because even I, who's kind of familiar with it is having trouble articulating how I do a question but, you know, I, I doubt, I, I don't want to say doubt, I wonder if people have different views on like, is it bad that a cabinet secretary is not technically elected, but has a lot of power versus do you think that somebody who is like, you know, been working at the Department of wherever for three decades, or somebody who has been at the Department of Defense for three decades, and has never had their name on a ballot and was not appointed by anybody with their name on a ballot? Like, is that a problem? But then I got down to that question about like the description of the deep state and with people saying like, yeah, it probably exists. And I was like, oh, well, I guess that that really tells the story. <laughs> like, yeah. that is, you know, that's not. And I, I wonder, again, like, do, when people hear unelected government and military officials, are they thinking that the deep state is like Mattis and Tillerson getting together and being like, oh, my gosh. Or do they think that the deep state is, you know, people working at the CIA whose names you've never heard of, who presumably hate the president? And like, there's still right. more nuance there. But the, but that number is really eye popping. That It is 74 percent who say. Yeah, something like the deep state probably exists. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and again, without qual or a lot of follow up, it's hard to know kind of how panicked people are or what they're thinking about, right? I mean, even with this unelected or appointed question, have too much influence. If you had a series of like, does such group have too much influence or the right amount? You know, every group other than kind of people like you would get a they have too much influence. If you asked it about you know, business leaders and lobbyists and campaign donors and politicians, you know, what have you, right? I mean, you would get that, the, these kinds of majority responses there. So it doesn't necessarily mean that people are, you know, are singling out folks who work in the federal government as unique, having a unique amount of undue influence, right? Or too much influence. Um, so yeah, it, it, but it's still, it's interesting. It still shows that people can be brought around to the idea that we, you know, that there's a lot that we don't know about that's controlling the government. And, I, you know, what we don't know is how this number has changed. Is it, has it gotten higher under Trump? I mean, I suspect it has, but I don't, you know, I don't know that for sure, obviously. Mm -hmm. We don't have, we don't have deep state tracking. But you know what we do have tracking for, Margie? The political <laughs> affiliation of millennials. <laughs> And yes. Guess what, everybody? <laughs> so Q Research Center, as we talked about on last week's show, has been putting out a lot of data about the political affiliation um, across generations. They did a whole report about millennials. They gave a final definitive cutoff for the millennial generation at 1996. And they've put out fresh data this week that dives into the political leanings of voters 
over going back about over two decades, um, and to what extent people of various political affiliation or of various demographic characteristics have leaned more Democratic or Republican. And the story it tells is uh, fascinating, if not terribly surprising. Um, it shows that since 1994, uh, women who are registered voters have become eight points more Democratic, while men have become five points more Democratic. Um, the education level, uh, those with college degrees and without college degrees back in 1994, uh, pretty evenly divided. And then by the time you get to uh, now, folks with a college degree are 16 points more likely to call themselves Democrats than they were back in the Gingrich Revolution era. But then you have millennials. When millennials first started voting, 53% uh, of us identified as Democrats that spiked during Obama's first election, and then kind of settled back in, but still at this like 50%-ish level. And I assume that they're saying, you're either a Democrat or you're an independent who leans Democratic, because those numbers mm -hmm. are really high if you're just looking at pure Democratic ID. But if you're counting the leans in. Um, but now we are back uh, to 59% of millennials who consider themselves either Democrats or leaning Democratic, which is about, again, this is, this is Obama's first election level de-identification. And these, the people who are millennials now are older. I mean, they're taking people of a consistent birth year cohort and just watching them as they get older, and they are not getting more conservative. <laughs> and what's fascinating is this Pew report then also kind of broke it out by gender. And I actually don't think we have that chart in our script right now, but it was, it shows that most of the change in party ID among millennials comes from women, that actually millennial mm -hmm. men have stayed pretty consistent over the years. But it is it is millennial women who have just like said, no, thank you to the GOP. So this report got traction anew last week, you know, friends of the show. Uh, Ron Brownstein was tweeting about it. I, there were a bunch of people who were all tweeting it and then tagging me going like, Ah, uh, at case old to Sanderson, she said so. And like, I'm just like, I've run out of the ability to scream. <laughs> <laughs> like, you all knew, you were warned, you were told, nobody, no crying, you, you knew what you were getting into, America. So, uh, yeah, just more data to prove that millennials are not getting more conservative as they get older. They're not gravitating toward the GOP. And the day of reckoning is upon us. Yeah, I mean, so, so and one and one person even tagged us and said that they were in a meeting or in a conference call, and someone said, "Well, millennials will come back around once they stop buying avocado toast and start paying taxes or something like that." <laughs> you know, I mean, I I like when people know our sort of hobby horses enough to tweet something that specific. Like, <laughs> I bet this is a thing that Kristen's not going to like. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that I was like, oh, that yes, is that acceptable is acceptable trolling. <laughs> totally acceptable trolling of us. Like, you know, it's going to make me agitated, but I'm okay. Like, that kind of trolling, I welcome. I, I don't think he, they, that this particular Twitter user meant it as trolling, but certainly no, no. it would get a rise out of us. <laughs> I know, but other, but other people got, like, lots of other people were getting angry. I mean, it just, because it's such a, I mean, here's the thing, right? And this is, People make this argument about Democrats that Democrats are not seeming like they're inclusive to, you know, folks in rural areas and so on. And, you know, I, I hear that. We could talk about that. That's not really, you know, the pattern that emerges loud and clear from these particular data, which is, you know, are there groups like women, young people, 
people of color who feel like the Republican Party is not a home for them. And is this become a reinforcing cycle where if those are not areas where groups among whom Republicans do well, that, that they spend less time and have less capacity to try to reach out to those groups. And, you know, it could be not to single out this sort of anonymous avocado toast person. Right. But that's the kind of thing that shows, well, you know, this is this is it's going to be harder to reach these voters, you know, with attitude like that. So, I mean, there's there's so much more to say, and yet there's nothing more to say. On this. <laughs> I, well, you know. I, I, do, I have one thing I have one thing to say, which is not about your side, it's about my side. And that is worth noting. And that is they looked at the ideology of D's and R's. And so party ID is different than ideology. You could be a conservative Democrat. You could be oh, you could be a liberal Republican. There aren't many, but you can be. Um, and it, it's technically possible. They are not. They are related, but they are not exact one and the same. And uh, they have tracking of ideology among Republicans who have become increasingly conservative, although not dramatically so, but increasingly conservative from 58 percent who call themselves conservative to 68 percent. I don't know how much of that is because Republican ID, I believe it is, you know, has shrunk um, in these data. I don't see that. It must be in their report, but I don't see it handy, but I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Um, among Democrats, though, and I'm assuming the Democratic ID has widened, you know, grown a little bit or at least has not shrunk. Um, but the ideology has changed dramatically since 2000, where it was almost even between liberal and conservative, 28 percent liberal, 23 percent conservative. And now it's 46 percent liberal and 15 percent conservative. I mean, that is a really, really big jump. And this is liberal. This is not even using the word progressive, which is what people have moved to. Um, but I get that it's tracking. It's not a criticism of the question. Um, and uh, and also these ideology, you know, ideology questions usually use the word liberally, but if people self-identify as progressive. Um, but it is relevant because people are talking about the Illinois primary where there was a more conservative Democrat who had a cha- primary challenge from a more progressive Democrat. And who came and that progressive Democrat, Marie Newman, came up a little short of I mean, it. It was a very, you know, it was. I think less than or fewer than a thousand votes between them at the end. Um, and so if you take that plus Pennsylvania 18, it, there's this, you know, is there this sense that maybe, you know, Democratic voters prefer a more conservative Democratic kind of candidate? And, uh, you know, it, it, that may not be true given these overall Pew numbers. Obviously, every race is, is special and unique. But I just want to note that because it's not just your imagination. Democrats are becoming more liberal. Fantastic. Well, let's take a look then at some polling on the hashtag MeToo movement, which we've talked about a lot on this show. But this is a since we're on the kind of generational divide question, like a particularly appropriate um, study. So this comes to us from uh, Vox and Morning Consult doing a study of women. Um, and Perry Undem did a lot of qualitative. Perry Undem, which always we like to cite them, they do a very interesting. Oh, stuff. Oh, yes, so yes, yes. Perry Undem did, did qualitative. Um in this poll, they, they ask, you know, in general, do you support or oppose the Me Too movement? And very little difference between women under 35 and women over 35. You have 71% of women under 35, 68% of women over 35, um, that or 35 and up, I should say. If I say over and under, then I'm pretending that like all women 35 years old don't exist. Uh, mm. Then would you say that the Me Too movement represents your interests 58% of women under 35 say yes, it represents their interests well. 
52% of women over 35 say it represents their interests well. Um, not I'm not a totally huge gap. sure what that means. I'm not totally sure what that means. I mean, I guess, you know, anyway, I, I don't, it's, it's a, it's a legitimate question because it is like a kind of a perception question, but it's like, what does it mean that it represents your interests? Are they fighting, you know, is the movement like fighting for people like you? It's like, you know, or is it just represent, you know, issues that you care about? It's not, to, you know, I think there's a little bit of vagueness, but anyway, sorry, continue. But one of the reasons why I think the lack of gender gap is so interesting is on some of these other things that we've looked at, there has been a generation gap, or pardon me, not gender gap, generation gap. Um, when we looked at that polling coming out of Hollywood about like, have you ever encountered uh, bad behavior in the workplace? And did you report it? You know, there were big differences in the way young women were approaching, had they ever reported bad behavior versus older women? Or there were different things that they were thinking of as like, yes, this counts as a bad thing. Um, but despite those different, perhaps, approaches to dealing with uh, unwanted sexual advances and bad behavior in the workplace, um, there's there's no difference, it seems, by generation on uh, how you, if you think this is a problem and if you think something should be done about it. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I thought the, the these data was really interesting because it's challenging this perception of like a backlash and that older women and younger women are fighting, which is kind of a, a common trope in how people talk about feminism that, that, and even uh, amongst the progressive family as well, that older women, you know, have some animosity toward younger women because they haven't gone through the same struggles that older women have and younger women think older women, they don't get it because they don't know what it's like to be young and out and whatever, you know, live, you know, live in your best life and they're just sort of older and they don't, you know, they don't remember what it's like to kind of be slogging through some of these challenging issues when you're younger. And it looks like from this, that that's the, there's really not much to it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, the reporting piece, because that's ultimately about sort of the external political climate, as opposed to your own views about what's right or wrong or how you feel. Um, so I'm not surprised at all. And the qualitative that they did, was also consistent with older, you know, showed older people who are less interested, older women are a little less likely to report or say something. Um, so I'm not surprised that there's a, um, that there's not that much of a generation gap here. And I think it's, you know, we need to, I, I think because we're always looking for sort of where are the angles or nuances or, or fissures in these issues that we look to make a wider, you know, that there's something more serious going on than there is, right? And I guess that's where we come down on a lot of these findings, not just on Me Too, on anything, where we'll look at something and say, like, okay, well, people are making a lot of fuss over this, but ultimately the difference among voters is pretty small. This is another one of those issues. And all this sort of squabbling or sense that, you know, the Me Too's gone too far and older people think this or we should be talking about something else, it, you know, it's just not, it, it's not really borne out by these data. Um, you know, I still think, and we could talk about the great New York Times story uh, in the upshot about leadership. And, uh, you know, th I think it's important, and the New York Times story, I think, highlighted that, that we're including a lot of other things in addition to Me Too. It's not just Me Too and sexual harassment. And it's not to say that Me Too is not, and it doesn't have, you know, that sexual discrimination doesn't have economic consequences, but there's a lot other, there are a lot of other issues that 
present economic challenges in addition to sexual harassment. And the New York Times upshot piece where they looked at some research where they asked people to draw an effective leader and both men and women drew men. Um, you know, that's not about sexual harassment. That's about leadership, like who they envision, what's the picture, how do they think of a leader? And the default is men. And that makes it much harder for people to, you know, visualize themselves or visualize their colleagues as leaders um, in a way that could have some, you know, really serious repercussions. So one other thing before we move on that I want to talk about, about this Vox poll is uh, you have uh, some questions about the, about men. Um, and the Me Too movement. Do you think that women are men are going to be more reluctant to work with women as a result of Me Too? Um, how worried are you about men being denied due process? Uh, you know, when do you think it's an acceptable byproduct for men to lose their jobs over allegations of sexual misconduct, even if those allegations are not backed up by concrete evidence? And while I see a lot of discussion online from not in conservative circles, but sort of the like progressives that I follow a lot of like, sorry, guys, your, your tears and your worry about, oh, am I going to get fired? Like, don't really matter to me because, uh, women have been mistreated forever. So like, just suck it up and deal with it. And that's not a majority view at all. Um, that, you know, how concerned are you about me too, uh, about men being denied due process? You have about 50% of women under 35, no generation difference between women under and over 35 saying like, they're either very or somewhat concerned about men being denied due process. Only one out of four women under 35 think it's acceptable for men to lose their jobs over allegation of sexual misconduct, even if those allegations are not backed up by concrete evidence. There's a, a sizable generation gap on this where women under 35, again, are much more likely to say it's acceptable um, for men to lose their jobs, even if allegations are not backed up by evidence. Women over 35 sort of believe there should be a higher standard of of proof there um but i was i was actually glad that they asked those questions because i think that's one thing where even folks who are very excited about the idea of being able to call out bad behavior in the workforce get a little bit nervous about you know is is there a chance this will go too far i mean we kind of got into that a little bit with the whole aziz ansari situation and like okay that wasn't even a, a workplace issue necessarily, but I was glad that Vox asked these other questions to sort of tell the other side that no, women who want to, who support the Me Too movement, like doesn't necessarily mean they want to throw due process out the window or they want people to lose their jobs willy nilly, that, that there are boundaries around uh, what should be done. And, and the, the polling sort of reflects that. Yep. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And, you know, it adds to our understanding to have some exploration of that. Before we, so, so before we get, before we get to our last topic, which is an area where Margie and Ronald Reagan disagree vehemently, I want to just do YOLO rant number three of the show, a little flashback to a show we had in October where I discussed my feelings about a company called Cambridge Analytica. You may have heard about them in the news lately. Uh, their CEO has been suspended. Mark Zuckerberg is being summoned to speak in front of the UK Parliament to answer questions for what has occurred here. Um, if you are unfamiliar with the story, essentially Cambridge Analytica for years has been pitching to political campaigns that they can help you target voters based on psychographic profiles, meaning instead of the normal stuff that a campaign will target people on, 
Have you voted in primaries in the past? What's your party affiliation? How often do you vote? Uh, gender, age, zip code, like the normal things that are the most useful for political targeting. Cambridge Analytica was sort of trying to sell. We can also target people based on personality type. And what we've done is we've collected data of hundreds of thousands of people who took this personality quiz. And therefore, we know all this information about them so we can develop models that even though they don't know specifically that I am a neurotic person or whatever, they can run a model that will say, ah, Kristen is neurotic and therefore we need to send her this type of message. And this is really appealing to people who want the next shiny, fancy thing and had heard, oh, the Obama team did really sophisticated targeting back in 2012. We've got to get our hands on some of that data stuff. Everyone so wants Cam an easy button, like, oh, if we can only just find the people who we need and then just talk to them, right? Everybody wants an easy button. So like, circumvent, I mean, I, the number of you know. times that, yeah, <laughs> exactly. The number of times that I've had a client, uh, like in a, in a, pitch where I'm trying to talk to a client about what I can do with Echelon and blah, blah, blah. They're really like, what we really want here is to be able to micro-target our messages to very specific subgroups. And like, it's one of those things, this, this will sound a little crass, but I saw someone tweet this and it is perfect, that micro-targeting is like, or like that, that level of sophisticated targeting is like, um, sex in high school. Like everyone says they're doing it, but like very few people actually are. <laughs> um, That's funny. Inappropriate, inappropriate, inappropriate. But the, like, I, I kind of got a chuckle when I read that because it, 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 like, so many people talk a big game about this and then they fail to deliver. And Cambridge Analytica just to me always reeked of like that kind of like, we talk a big game about all this data we've absorbed and we're going to do all this scary stuff with it. And sure enough, so initially the Cruz campaign had hired Cambridge Analytica because they were backed by the Mercers and the Mercers were donating to these Cruz super PACs and so on and so forth. And The Guardian in 2015 wrote a whole article about how Cambridge Analytica was building their models off of this data set that was derived from a Facebook personality quiz app. And one thing that people didn't realize, but was always the case was that when you agreed to click on, yes, I'm going to take this personality quiz, not only was your data made available to the quiz maker, but all of your friends' data was then available to the quiz maker. This was something that the Obama campaign used very effectively in 2012 to help people identify which of their Facebook friends would be the most important for them to reach out to, kind of targeted sharing. And it was hailed as this like amazing technological achievement. Um, back around that era, I remember Patrick and I, I was still at Winston Group at the time, and he was at Engage. We hadn't founded Echelon yet, but we launched a Facebook app um, to, you know, it was called, I think, something like Trendsetter, where people could click and you would then find out, like, are you someone who tends to like things on Facebook, um, you know, faster than your friends? Are you the trendsetter in your friend group? And you know, great and interesting, but what it did was it would then give us all of your data and all of your friends' data. Now, we didn't keep it. It doesn't exist anymore. And this was back before Facebook shut that down. But this was something that marketers and companies like mine and everybody was able to do. So Facebook figured it out, realized that this was potentially a problem, and a couple years later shut this all down. What Cambridge Analytica was doing was 
I believe taking either old data and sharing it in a way that violated the terms of service or collecting new data in a way that was violating the terms of service. That is unclear to me at this point. All of which is to say, this was not anything new and it was not anything unique to them. What was unique to them is that they were working for people that people say are the bad guys. Um, and that they were doing so. And so it's now suddenly this like nefarious thing, which it, it always, it always kind of was bad that you were able to ingest this much data from people who had not consented to have their data absorbed. They were just friends with someone who was dumb enough to consent right. to have their data absorbed. Um, so that's piece number one is that like, it was not just Cambridge Analytica doing this. This had been done by tons and tons and tons and tons of other people. Uh, prior uh, to Facebook sort of shutting off that capability. But number two is that there's no evidence in my mind that this data was actually used for anything valuable. That Cambridge Analytica was able to somehow like actually go in and psychologically manipulate millions of people with this information. And this is something I get into arguments. I got into an argument with Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe back in October about this because the Trump campaign in 2016 was going out and saying, oh, we've got this secret data, these super hyper-targeting dark web, you know, whatever fancy stuff. And people like Scarborough, you know, would hear this and they'd say, oh, look, the Trump campaign is touting all this Cambridge Analytica stuff. But when I talk to folks from the RNC, from the Trump campaign, et cetera, even before Cambridge Analytica was this like toxic pariah, they would all say, no, 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 no. Like the Cambridge Analytica stuff was garbage and we were barely using them. It was the RNC data that was useful. Like we were doing good targeting, but it was not Cambridge Analytica that was like genuinely doing useful stuff for us. They may have been doing sketchy things and trying to coordinate with the Russians and whatever, but like they were not a piece of what was making us win. Um, so now, of course, that's all coming out. And people are saying, oh, that's just Trump campaign spin because they don't want to be tied to this super sketchy company. I don't think that that's just spin. I think genuinely Cambridge Analytica stuff was not super useful to the Trump campaign. But you don't want to come out contemporaneously and say, we have this vendor that's not giving us right. useful stuff. You, you say, oh, yeah, we've got this secret Death Star we're building. Um, it just so turns out that there were an incompetent, but uh, nonetheless, very scary Death Star. Um, and so. Right. So you could be sketchy. You could be sketchy and useless as opposed to sketchy and, you know, the mastermind behind it all. Yes. So this gets me a lot of heat on Twitter from folks on the left that like really believe Cambridge Analytica was able to go in and psychologically manipulate millions of voters. And that's why Donald Trump won. Like, I hate to break it to you. And Ariel Edwards Levy had a great like, quote, tweeted a great line from one of these articles, like, the most effective things I need to know to target you as a voter are have you voted in past primaries and your basic demographics? Like, it's, that is the basics. It's the, everybody wants to be able, again, to, to lose 50 pounds by eating ice cream. And when the real answer is no, you just have to diet and exercise. Uh, you have to just eat vegetables and exercise a lot. And that's what will make you healthier. Like that is the, you need to be targeting people on demographics, like gender, like age, like race, like past vote history. Like these are the basics that have always worked and will continue to work. And it's great that we now have other insights and consumer data about people to refine those insights, to go target people who may be 
cross-pressured voters or what have you. I, I'm not saying that stuff is useless. I'm saying that it is not the miracle cure that a company like Cambridge Analytica was pitching itself as being. So, okay. Uh, this I mean, is, this but just, so like, I, he, just... I hear that. <laughs> no, no, I hear, I hear that. And I'm, and I'm not necessarily d- disagreeing with you. I mean, look, I, you know, I'm certainly not disagreeing with the notion that Cambridge Analytica or anyone else might oversell the ability to micro target in and what the implications of that could be. Right. Um, not that it, it, people shouldn't do it or that it can't be done or there aren't ways, tools to improve your voter file targeting or to reach people online, all that stuff. Right. That stuff does matter. But but it, it's the psychological profiles that I think make what they were selling distinct and perhaps sort of a little you know, kind of oversold, right? Like o- overestimated in terms of its importance. Um, but the counter argument is, well, they don't have to like manipulate the whole country, right? It really could just have been at the margins in a few places or been this, you know, been sort of the spark in some online conversations that allowed some of the more, you know, uh, inflammatory Trumpy things kind of catch fire with certain audiences in a way that, you know, was damaging, right? I mean, it doesn't have to, you know, there's, I mean, the other piece of this is it doesn't have to be the reason why Trump won, but it could be the reason why there is a, you know, not insignificant group of people who believe a completely different set of, you know, facts and figures and context about what happened in 2016. I think that all sounds fair. Um, I, but I, I, my, my word of caution to people is when you see videos of the CEO of Cambridge Analytica sitting down and being like, ha ha ha, yes, we pushed all of this fake news into the bloodstream of the American election. Ha 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 ha. You know, evil twirling of the mustache type stuff. Like, I, I'm not saying this to defend them at all, because I am not losing any sleep over them going down in flames. But I am saying everybody should take, with a grain of salt, the claims of a company that really wanted badly for a time to privately behind the scenes be viewed as a Death Star when, in fact, they may not have been. They may have had sinister intentions, and they may be run by shady people. That doesn't necessarily mean, like, they masterminded Trump's win. So, okay. Yeah. Rant number three over. Okay, I think. Let's talk about jelly beans. (laughs) Okay, so we get, so occasionally, like, you know, how a, cl- a clock is right twice a day. Once in a while, we get a vaguely on point marketing pitch. And I-, I love when they're like, they seem like really urgent. Like, I just wanted to make sure you saw this about jelly beans. Like, okay, yeah, we saw it, you know. <laughs> we're not going to have a lot of back and forth about this. I'm, we're just going to talk about it at the end of the show. But um, they, uh, there was a story, who did this? The candystore.com, of course, that fine purveyor of polling of the best or the most popular jelly bean flavors. And this thing that I guess everybody does now where they show the most popular thing by state to have a little map, I guess this is a graphic that now everybody does for whatever it is they're showing. Um, but the number one flavored jelly bean, the most popular flavor is buttered popcorn. And that just to me is like gross on top of gross. Like I already think jelly beans are kind of vile and then a buttered, I love popcorn, but a buttered popcorn flavored jelly bean is just 
I guess there's a novelty to it, but it is, I mean, that is just gross. I mean, it's like, there's nothing that tastes more processed than a buttered popcorn flavor jelly bean. Like it could not taste more synthetic. I don't know. I'm just like, it's just gross thinking about all these flavors. I, so I, I'll take the other side. I, I kind of like the buttered popcorn ones. And I especially like, really? if you eat a pina colada one and a buttered popcorn one at once, like, and you mush all of those flavors together, that's pretty good. <laughs> hmm. uh, my biggest beef with this map is the number of states where black licorice jelly beans are number one. Like, what is actually wrong with all of you people? seriously <laughs> that's horrifying there's who why 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 would you want to eat something that just tastes horrible um that, like i can't, can't even put into words how like alaska north carolina colorado new jersey i am judging all of you states harshly right now you have been weighed measured and found wanting this is unacceptable this is disgusting <laughs> i, I do you also dislike black licorice? Because I don't really like black licorice either. And a black licorice jelly bean doesn't sound like an improvement no, in the licorice like the, department. The existence of good and plenties like continues to mystify me. I don't know a single person who likes good and plenties. And they're black licorice. Yeah. But like I like I like fennel. I'm maybe I'm too like fancy. Right. And I like anise like, seeds, yes. Ooh, you know, but like black licorice itself, yes. I actually think the best yeah. jelly bean on this list is Juicy Pear. So congratulations, Vermont and New Hampshire and Washington State. You've got it, the right idea. Juicy Pear jelly beans. My friend Nicole in high school used to be like super addicted to them and would carry a bag of them around all the time. Maybe that's why I like them, but Juicy Pear is pretty good. Of just Juicy Pear? She would just carry Juicy Pear around? Yeah, there was, I, th I think a store opened at the Florida Mall while we were in high school that was a Jelly Belly store. Oh, no, it wasn't at the Florida mm. Mall. It was out at Downtown Disney, which is the, like, Disney-created, go see a movie, go have dinner, go shopping, like, outdoor plaza thing that we would terrorize as, as teenagers. And so they had a Jelly Belly store, right. I think, where you could go and just buy, like, a sack of one flavor. Hmm. It was great. I guess I have to call it Juicy because <laughs> otherwise pear on its own would not sound appealing. But Juicy Pear, you're like, oh, maybe I want that. It does. It gets um, the, the okay. modifier. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that the other ones don't like. The other ones are like dry, dry blueberries, dry cherries. Um, okay, so key findings. Do not congratulate us for recording on a snow day. The show must go on um, as a wise person. <laughs> I know we didn't even talk about that, right? Um, and as a wise person once told us, ladies are tricky, yo. So make sure you're looking at all the polling. And why have buttered popcorn jelly beans when you can have actual buttered popcorn? So many polling mysteries yet to solve. You can find us on Twitter at, at The Pollsters, individually at, at Marzio Romero and at Casolta Sanderson. Find us at www.thepolsters.com or on Facebook, where we post links to the stories we think might be interesting throughout the week, slash where Kristen will very infrequently engage with trolls. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thanks. All righty. All right, so leave your phone open. Thank I'm you. I'm going to leave my phone open. <laughs> okay, cross Bye. fingers. Bye. Okay.